Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 17. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School. Each episode on Life at School, I sit down with a fellow life science teacher and talk about how they got in the classroom, what they're currently working on, and their hopes for the future. This week, I sit down with Bob Kuhn. Bob is a science teacher at Centennial High School in Roswell, Georgia. He has taught biology and AP biology for more than 14 years. Bob is widely recognized as a leader in AP biology community. He serves as a moderator for the College Board AP Biology Teachers Community. Bob was the 2016 recipient of the Kim Foglia AP Biology Service Award. Bob is a frequent presenter at both state and national teaching conferences. He has helped develop and present resources for HHMI Biointeractive, including the Data Points resources. He also contributed to the Unity and Diversity Writing Project with his essay, Being Open-Minded with a Skeptical Filter. You may recognize his voice as a contributor and guest host on the Horizontal Transfer podcast. You can follow his musings about biology and teaching and life in general on Twitter at APBioRoswell. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to have you here. Um, yeah, it was it was funny. I was saying that today, this is now a Super Bowl Sunday, so I do not think there could be a more appropriate uh, recording of uh, you in Georgia, me <laughs> me in Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> this is, we can do our picks at the end. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's dangerous because this is going to come out in two weeks. So one of us will, <laughs> one of us will come out as an absolute fool. But uh, I think I think the picks are pretty predictable. I'd be a little right. I'd be a little disappointed if uh, if it was otherwise. But uh, I will, when this comes out, one of us will have will have some bragging rights. I think uh, from a Super Bowl standpoint. Yes, yeah. definitely. But from Massachusetts standpoint, we could also just say, well, you know, Matt Ryan, Boston College, you know, we could. Uh, That's true. <laughs> we can always make the claim either way. So, well, uh, I'm just going to get uh, right into it and ask you, how did you become a science teacher? What brought you into the, the classroom? OK, well, it's an interesting story. It's it's a love story. So um, it's a little different than most people. Um, I went to the University of Georgia and I stayed there for graduate school. Um, I did not get a degree in biology. I was uh, I have two degrees in paleontology. And um, while I was in grad school, my major professor, um, she liked to, to, to lecture, but we were assigned labs as sort of employees, like mo- most graduate programs you work for the for the school. And it's low pay, but mm-hmm. it was my first experience being around, um, you know, basically freshman in high school. There was only a semester difference between that and freshman in college. So, um, so I, I was in charge of teaching labs and, and all that. And I really liked it. And I really liked uh, teaching them and uh, never had any experience with that before. So I, I went and finished my program and, um, actually worked for the state of Georgia in environmental protection. It was the only kind of job I could get at the time. And so I became a certified landfill operator. And my job was to travel the state of Georgia and inspect landfills for groundwater contamination and methane and help them with design and 
uh, in Georgia, we have a lot of pit landfills mm -hmm. that at the time were not lined. So there was contamination all over the place. So it was really fun because I was 25 and um, had never seen the state of Georgia outside of Athens. So uh, I got a really good education about the state of Georgia and the diversity of it. Anyway, um, I met my, uh, my future wife in graduate school and she went to teach uh, in Korea for a year to teach English. Mm -hmm. And so we were away from each other for a whole year. And that was before the internet and before <laughs> email and stuff. So it was very difficult. And when she got back, um, I was, I was still working in environmental protection and she said, well, I want to go to law school. And so she got accepted back in, in Athens. And I said, well, look, I, I can't, I can't handle being away for another year. Um, I'm got to, I got to either, we got to either break up or I've got to switch jobs. And so I decided that, you know, I'd always really liked teaching. And so I went with her to Athens and enrolled in a teaching certificate program while she was in law school and ended up actually working in a middle school while she finished up law school. So that's how I got into it, a very different pathway than most people. Yeah. And getting into middle school of all things. Uh, sixth grade. Oh, yes. sixth grade. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think that everybody who teaches middle school deserves like, you know, combat pay. Um, I, I describe our middle school or I describe all middle schools as uh, hormone soup. Uh, <laughs> it, it was strange. I mean, I had to teach math and science, which I'm not a math teacher. Yeah. And I, I was pretty nervous, but I was also really, really excited. But I had no experience with kids that were 11 yeah. and 12. I mean, I did not know what I was doing. So Luckily for me, I was in a hall. I was the only man in the hallway, and most of the women were older, experienced teachers, and they adopted me and really helped me out. So it, it, it was a great experience. Yeah, it's good to have those mentors around that are willing to guide you when you when you're first yeah. in there. Um, so then you start in middle school, you get in their program. Um, did you stay through middle school until you finished your certificate and then apply to high school jobs? Um, so I, I had, um, two years in middle school. I was already finished with my certificate okay. and then, um, my wife got a job in Atlanta mm -hmm. and so we just packed up and moved to Atlanta. I, I had been in Athens for 14 years. So, um, you know, the funny thing about college towns is that it's kind of the Matthew McConaughey line and days and confused you really you really do stay the same and every everybody or you you get older and everybody get you know stays the same <laughs> yeah. young age and after a while you just run out of stuff to do because it's not geared for you anymore so we moved to Atlanta and, and I started at Centennial and Centennial had just been built for the Atlanta at the time of the Atlanta Olympics mm -hmm. and I've just been there ever since so I'm sort of a part of the furniture now so. yeah yeah, I well, I grew up myself in a college town. Um, I know very much what you what you mean because I went to high school in a college town, and then got my undergraduate degree there, and then got my master's degree there. Um, and I always do find that when I go back, it is weird. You know, it's like this is a it's a town built for like twenty one year olds. Like, right. <laughs> you know, it's you know you got like nine coffee shops and like you know nine bars and. It, it really is. A, it's a great place if you're, you know, 18 to 25, but it does, you know, it's, it is hard. You have to find sort of your own community in there. Um, it does, does change as you age. So, um, 
I still miss it. Uh, <laughs> there's still things you miss, like that you're in the middle of the nowhere and all this culture comes to the college town. But if, right. if you're in a big city, you get, you absolutely get the culture there as well. So hey, I miss I miss the music. I mean, Athens yeah. was pretty famous for its music, and um, I do miss that part of being able to go to three different venues on a weekend and seeing cool bands. Yeah, so. yeah. I I anyway. I know what you mean. I I, I think back. You know. Uh, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I love jazz uh, still to this day, but my love of jazz started back back then. And I, I saw in Northampton, which is one town over from, from Amherst where I grew up, um, I saw Miles Davis in 1989 before he passed away. Uh, I saw Dave Brubeck uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in my first year teaching at a little place that was, I mean, you, you could fit all the people in my, the first floor of my house. That was the size right. of the place that I went and saw Dave Brubeck. So, yeah, you, the number of people who come through those areas, it's it's a little more work when you're in a city. You got to pay attention to a lot of other things, but sure. they just seem to come through all the time. So the joys of the college town. Right. Uh, so one of the big things that, um, you know, I, I know that you just finished your uh, Georgia State, uh, your Georgia Science Teachers Association conference there. Uh, were you uh, what were you presenting there at this time? You know, this this time around. Actually, I didn't present this year yeah. because I'm on the board of directors. Um, I'm the high school representative for the state. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds important, but really the district representatives um, are a little bit more important than my role because they're working specifically with their areas. But um, being my first year on the board, I didn't present because I just didn't know how much time I would have. And um we, it was amazing. I did not expect there to be around 1800 people, which is it's a lot. I mean, it's more than some regionals mm -hmm. and, and, uh, we, we were not, we were prepared for it, but we were just blown away by the number of people that came and, um, it was a fun time. Uh, it, it's a very different vibe than some of the national conferences when you're actually working a conference, mm -hmm. you know, you, you see the hard work that goes into it. Whereas if you're a presenter, you just sort of show up and do your thing and then, you know, you leave. But but, but it was very successful. Um, I'll probably present something next year. I just wanted to take a year off because I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, you know, the numbers were huge. I mean, I, I go to um, I've been to our state conference a few different times and it's it, there's no I don't know what the numbers are. Uh, I'm a little bit more involved with the uh, our biology teacher uh, group. And, you know, if we have. If we have a hundred people who come to the Massachusetts Biology Teacher Conference, it's you know it's that's a big turnout. Um, you know, a hundred would be a lot, so it'd be in the thousands. You know, nearly nearly two thousand is just incredible. Uh, I mean, that's got to be pretty close to NABT size. Some of the some of the years. I've yeah, been. I think it was, and and I think what drove it this year with two things, um, well, maybe three things. We did really do a good job of getting the word out, but we have new standards that are rolling out next year. Mm -hmm. And the way the state uh, decided to roll out the standards was the state was not going to be the ones who would deliver it. It would be teachers who would deliver it through sort of an ambassador program. And so a lot of people were curious about how to implement these standards. Uh, and so I think that drew a lot of people. And then the other thing um, is we have a nas the national conference is in Atlanta next year. Oh, so okay. I think people were um, coming to be involved and joining because they knew that next year the national conference would be there. So, yeah, that's great. 
So I do know that when you have presented recently, and I know also you know, you've done a lot of HHMI things, so that sort of brings me into the, my next uh, my next question, which is uh, the data points resources, which um, it's funny because, you know, it, I was in there and I actually used the data points when I was uh, when I was writing my mid-year for one of my mid-years. I was plucking a couple of the couple of the couple of the images and uh, and a couple of the backgrounds uh, to write some questions in there. But I'm curious about, you know, the data point resources and how how do you get involved with making these resources and how do you go through the process of creating these? Well, uh, originally, um, HHMI were thinking about doing something with data because they felt like with the statistics, um, there was a need for for that. And then people were saying that, you know, resources of data out there for teachers to get a handle, handle on um, were limited. So they decided to do this series in the beginning. It was just going to be maybe 12, and I think they're going to do it every year now. But uh, so really, it, it's an interesting process. You know, not a lot of us have um, access to these professional journals unless they're the free ones online. And that was one motivator, I think, was to make the data more accessible. So sort of the rules are that um, so every summer um, I sit down, uh, I have a, um, a, a colleague, um, Natalie Dutro, who is a KSTF fellow, who's also an HHMI ambassador. She's helping me now on it, uh, or we're working together, I should say. And so what we do is we sit down and get some input for HHMI um, about any resources they want us to focus on, but they really give us a lot of latitude to scour sort of the, the, the current journals and look for figures and, and interesting um, articles that people might like, try to keep it a, a, as diverse um, as we can, as long as it fits into the HHMI sort of themes. And then we put together sort of a slideshow of the figure and our explanation about why we think it's important and what what is in the figure and then we we send them the powerpoint and they take it to the board and they all talk about which ones they think are good or we should wait on and then they send us a list of about 12 or 13 and we just um we have a timeline and we knock them out during the year and they and they publish them so um i i think professionally for me it's great because it the data points are a a wide variety of analysis. There are things that I like data analysis that I don't usually come across that I have to sort of learn and figure out. And you also get exposed to everything from cell biology all the way up to ecology. So it keeps you current and and really excited about what's out there because it's easy as a classroom teacher to just, you know, you're so focused on your classroom to forget there is science out there and, and, you know, it, it, it's hard to find. So. Yeah. So when you, so like, it sounds like it's a funnel process. So to get down to that, say dozen, how many different, you know, how, how many different things are you proposing to get down to that dozen? Are we like 30 different, you know, yeah, something like that, yeah, 30. 25, 30. Yeah. So. And then every once in a while they'll say, you know, we have a resource that or a short film or something that's coming out. Um, you know, can you try to find something that sort of goes along with this idea? Yeah. So we did that with, um, there was one uh, short film that involved a scientist who studied bats mm -hmm. and, uh, and moths. 
and they were looking for some sort of echolocation type data point to go with that. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard because the, you can't, besides science, you have to look at the journals that are free Yeah, because you can't just start grabbing people's work and start taking their figures and talking about them. So it's gotta be it is inter yeah. interesting to see, like for the echolocation, I really, really wanted to look for something on um, elephants and, and the communicate, the old, you know, the low sonic communication, but it was really hard. I mean, I, I couldn't find anything out there that was really, uh, appropriate. So sometimes you don't really get what you want. But. Yeah. I'm curious what'll happen as you know, there's all this talk about, uh, you, we've got PLOS and we've got a few other free ones like MBio and, um, you know, M-Sphere, which are from the, you know, the ASM journals that they have the free ones that they put out there. But there's also like the bioarchive, uh, the preprint servers that are going out there, which seem also, you know, they'll be, I'm curious to see how, you know, with journaling online communication, how some of this thing, how some of these things might change. Um, I tend to use PLOS a lot for my students when I have, I have a couple of assignments where I have my AP students break down journal articles and I pretty much say, yeah, go to PLOS you know, start your search there and cause you know, those are going to be free and they're going to be available. Um, but it, it'll be curious to see how I think there's, there's definitely discussion about whether or not, you know, whether or not we should have more accessibility or whether or not there should be more journals like PLOS. Uh, but I think the funding component is really hard. It costs a lot of money to put something out that isn't behind a paywall. Um, yeah. Right. So, and, um, I, I think, you know, there's also a growing body of data out there for teachers now. Um, most people have known about the, um, what's the other data sites, not data points, data but nuggets, uh, nuggets yeah. is really good. And then um, one of the things that drove this year's selection was HHMI has a partnership with science, uh, AAS, mm -hmm. um, science in the classroom. And that resource is fantastic because when you go to that resource, there's a, it's actually a close reading um, website where you can highlight specific things in the articles mm -hmm. and they've really broken down the figures. So what we try to do is go and do some of those as data points to have like a crossover between the two things. So um, that was pretty cool. But I guess in spirit, the idea is to take data and make it accessible for teachers so that they can use it in some way in the classroom. So, yeah, and so I guess this leads to to me asking for you. Um, I found that since we've done the the new AP, I've had a lot of focus about how to work math in and how to work data into my classroom. And now I'm sort of puzzling over the how do I get it into the other science classrooms in there. So, um, you know, are you using? this as an entry point for use your students or do you tend to use more you know student generated data for the data discussion or do you find that it's a blend of using you know data and data manipulation and sort of that computational thinking with your students where, where do you get the, the bulk of your your data for discussions with kids well i mean there's classic data stuff that like like for example the the finch beak mm -hmm. graphs that are just fantastic right yeah they're not going to be able to replicate anything like that even if they do some sort of activity in the classroom so there there's stuff like that that is sort of priceless but you know um the data collection that you can do in class especially if you have 
three or four classes of the same, mm -hmm. you can really, if you do multiple trials, you can really get a pretty good set of data. And you know, what I find is the kids have been conditioned. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to blame another grade or anything like that, but I think over time they've been conditioned that the experiment is the fun part, but really my experience in science, the experiment was the nerve wracking part. <laughs> yeah. The, the data was the fun part because you're figuring out what it all means. And so when we collect data in the classroom, there's this tendency for my students anyway, to sort of try to blow off the data and, and say, oh, well, the experiment's done. We had a great time with it. And I'm, I'm always like, no, I mean, now we have to analyze and see what's going on. And, uh, and so, yeah, we use a lot of student data I'll use, um, I'll give one class the other class's data and have them try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I'll give them options where they can use their table groups data, they could use their classes data, or they could use all, let's say, all three classes worth of data, and they can see how the data changes. The problem is, is, is time. Um, you know, if I had a methods class or if I had uh, 90 minutes a day, I could... I could really get into it with them. But when we go down these rabbit holes, I have to sort of bring them back a little bit because just because of time and, and that's kind of unfortunate, but, but then the good news is I keep the data. Um, so I have them year after year. So then even though it's not the same, let's say like leaf discs or whatever, you have a data set you can pull and you can actually generate things like quiz questions, yeah. test questions based on your own students data. And I think that's really fun. You know, the, you can say this isn't made up. This is stuff you all did. So, yeah, I find that I do that all the time with my when I need a data set for a lab quiz or whatever. I've saved the uh, the I use Google Sheets uh, like most people right. do. I just go back in and I go, all right, what was the what was the Google Sheet data for this particular lab? You know, two years ago or whatever. And so I'll pull one class out and then copy that table and drop that in. And then I'll have the, them do the data analysis for some other class. And that way I can, I've already got the standard deviations worked out and standard right. errors um, and those type of pieces. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of those keys, key pieces you say. I, I do find um, for me with the data piece, that um, and I was just conferencing with all my students. I do a mid-year survey with my kids, and um, and so I've been talking to them. And one of the things I found in my kids when they were talking about their labs is the labs that they they found frustrating were the ones where the data wasn't very clean. Like right. they're like, oh, I really like this lab. We did this data and got it. And to me, I think I need to start working a little bit on the framing. It's like, no, no, when the data is messy, that's the, huh, why is the data messy? How can we clean this up? How do we work this piece out? I think the the aspect of these students being trained about, you know, there's a right answer in science uh, right. is still something that even though we've been shifting over in, you know, towards uh, the process of science the last few years, that piece is still pretty heavily ingrained in our students and that getting them to understand the importance of messy data is still data. It's good data. We learn a lot from messy data. Um, it's so, something that I, I think I, I need to work better on my personal framing for my kids, um, both younger and older. So, yeah, I agree. And I, I think a couple of things to go along with that. Um, one problem we have is um, that when they do an experiment and they collect data, it, more than likely, unless you have a, a bunch more time that you at your disposal, they're not going to go back and after they, you know, sort of figure out the, that the data is messy, 
they're not going to go back and redo the experiment and see what they can do with that. Yeah. So, so like if they get frustrated now with messy data, you know, just to let them know if they be go further in science, best of luck, because when you're, you know, when you're in a PhD situation or a master situation and you've been working three or four years on a, something and you get a data set, nobody's going to tell you, I mean, they make, make suggestions, but it's up to you to figure this out. And it's always messy. Yeah. Like I, I would argue that very infrequently is everything nice and linear and understandable at the beginning, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, and I know that's frustrating for them and it's frustrating for me too, because if we, if we do a lab and it comes out messy and we talk about it, then it'd be great to have another period or, or more to like they do in engineering is to, redesign and test again and see you know and change something and and i and i think if we had that component it'd be a lot more satisfying for me anyway yeah i've been trying to build that time in but you're absolutely right there is only so many hours in the year to go through that process Um, i often tell the kids that uh, we end up doing a lab series and we're actually in, in the middle of it right now with my with my ap kids i designed this uh microbiome um research project where the kids feed fruit flies something. Um, they change the food source. And then uh, we take those flies and we plate them out on differential media. And we see if you can shift the microbiome of these flies by feeding them, you know, cranberry juice or one group's doing antibiotics and another group's doing, wow. like they're doing all these different pieces. And I um, I got a fellowship to work in a lab one summer. And I had like, this lab is not the lab I started with. I had a different idea. I had a plan. And I spent, I was supposed to spend like six weeks in the lab and I ended up spending like all the entire summer, like the two and a half months of the summer, plus like two and a half months of the school year. I kept going into lab working on this project. So I spent like five months uh, trying to work out this project and, you know, would go go down into cul-de-sacs of labs that yielded nothing. Like just, I, you know, I was like, well, what if we tried this? And I would go down and I'd work on something and I'd get back and I'd be like, nope. And then I'd go and talk to some people and they're like, oh no, you're not going to get data on that. And I'm like, okay, great. So like you could have just told me that at the beginning, but I didn't, I didn't ask the right question to the right person who would have known that. And then I would ask other questions and people like, well, we don't know. And then it was a question I was like, all right, well, now that I've sort of worked this out, how do I, what's, what's the PCR program that I should run on this? Well, there's no protocol because like, this is now my lab. I've got to figure out. So, like, what TAC polymerase should I use? We've got three different ones in the lab. And what should be the program I run? And so then I would set up, I would take, you know, colonies of bacteria I would know. And then I'd run them at different temperatures. I had to do that, like, sort of working it out for the students. Um, and so after five months, I worked it. And then I rolled it out with my students last year. And we got some data, but it wasn't great. So then I went back to redesign. And so, like, I've worked on it this year. And that's and so when I tell the story to the kids about working in the lab, like, I still didn't do the thing I was hoping to do by lab, but I still was able to get some quality questions answered. So it's right. I think that knowing that the process of science is is going to be science doesn't have necessarily the right answer. You just you're going to have to let the data direct you to new questions and then asking new questions and and sort of trust in the process that you're going to gain more information and more importantly gain more questions as you go down this road um and the kids are really excited when we do it because they're like well what's going to happen when i do that and i go i don't know nobody right as far as i'm concerned nobody's ever done this before so let's give it a shot and see what it is and um it's a lot of fun to to go down those those avenues um 
but you're right. I would I would absolutely love to spend like four months doing this, but we spend parts of you know th- we set it up and then we spent like part of a week generating the data and then a week analyzing data, and that's really I'm stretching it on time to get this little side project in. Yeah, and then the other thing too that kind of bugs me in a way. I mean, we really we teach like an advanced survey class of biology, so if you we're focusing on something as an undergraduate thesis or even a graduate student, you'd be in a specific um, realm of science that you'd be doing all the time. But here we jump them from, you know, from let's say dissolved oxygen measurements Mm -hmm. to, to then we jump them to electrophoresis. And so we, I have to really remind myself that they're getting much more diverse (laughs) slice of, data analysis that you would if you were a professional scientist because you'd be focused on a specific work. So they don't have a lot of time to refine because they're constantly learning a new technique or yeah. a new te- new process or whatever. And, you know, I, I, I try to remind myself to be patient with them because <laughs> that, you know, they're, they're just not able to st- stick with something and focus with it all year. Yeah. Um, so I try to, I try to come back and do a final project where kids get to pick something to come back and revisit um, to f- fill that in. And since we've moved to the new AP, I'm now able to do that, which has been great. But I do I 100 percent know what you mean. And I actually had a specific kid who said on uh, one of their earlier labs that they wrote up, they were like, I was really frustrated by this lab because the data was messy. And I asked, I was like, well, if you had time to go back and redo it, would that have been good? And they're like, yeah, I would have loved to have gone back and I would have loved to do more try. Like, I think they're able to learn the process of science and, and see that. And just, again, I think it's because you're right, we do a survey, it's a lot about framing uh, and how we, we frame these things for the kids so that they don't feel like they're frustrated, but they understand that they're doing a wonderful job within the confines that we're, we're limiting them. Uh, and if they're a little bit thirsty to do more, that's, that's not such a bad thing. Uh, no, and I have to be patient with them in terms of grades too, because, you know, I, you, you can't expect when you're jumping around to so many different, um, analysis types that, you know, they're just not going to get it the first time and, and they, it's easy for them to get confused. So I'm a little bit more patient with them on lab scoring and things than I used to be because of that. So, yeah. All right, I'm going to shift gears completely on you. And um, uh, the other thing I brought up for you was uh, your AP Biology teacher community facilitation. Um, and I, I think that that's probably where a lot of people will recognize your name, at least AP Biology teachers will recognize your name from that, those moderator comments. And you were very active in there. I am, as somebody who's active online in a lot of different places, I am like the biggest lurker in that community. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever posted anything in the AP Bio teacher community. It's not that I never log on. It's not that I never read. Uh, in fact, I go in and read several times, but I'm just... I'm just not a poster in those communities. Uh, it's just, sure. it's, that's a little bit, not really my nature to, to do a lot of posting. Um, so it takes me sort of a long time to build up the practice of posting in communities. Um, so I, I monitor a handful and I get a lot out of it, but I'm curious from you, um, having done some facilitation, uh, facilitation changes the lens with which you look at community and community discussion. So I'm curious about how, moving up into this facilitator role and this moderator role has sort of shaped your professional development and classroom practice as you've, have you've moved into that role to facilitate that community? Well, I had a advantage of watching two people do it really well before I took it over, which was Brad Williamson and then David Konofke. So David um, is a lot 
So I look at David as being more of an intellectual than me. I'm more of a blue collar type. <laughs> let's get, you know, let's work at it and all that kind of stuff. Um, not to say that David's like an elitist or anything, but he's just very well-spoken and he seems to be able to answer people's questions very easily. Um, what I really wanted for the community when I um, accepted the role um, was I wanted it to be um, reflective of a, a of more sharing. Like I wanted to bring more people to the party so people would feel like they um, were at ease sharing their information. And so people come to the community for advice. They come to share. Um, sometimes they come to complain um, <laughs> a couple times a year, which is fine. Yeah. But I wanted to make sure that it was a space that people could share. And, you know, you, you have two different things side by side. You have the teacher community and then the Facebook page. Yeah. And they're very different. Like if you look at what's going on on each one, um, I think a lot of people do like to lurk on the community and sort of pick and choose what they do. And then the Facebook um, site is very different in the way people talk to each other and, and all that. So um, I wanted to make sure that it try to make sure that everybody has a voice on the community and that people can share resources. Um, and then the other thing about it is it's, you know, I have to, I have to do things for the college board because it mm -hmm. is their board and they, they have specific things they're looking for. Um, but I, but I guess David was a lot more hands-on. I tend to, to want to sit back a little bit and see if people can answer other people's questions without me coming in and saying, this is what I think. Yeah. Um, if nobody replies to somebody, I'll normally try to come in and help out. But we have so many experienced people that if I leave it hanging out there for a while, people tend to come and help people, yeah. which is what I want. So, yeah, the community is I, I mean, it's it's one of those funny things that like it, it's obvious to me now how how many wonderful voices there are out there um you know i came into teaching ap with a colleague in the room that i basically co-teach with we have our own separate rooms but we design curriculum together and we have the sounding board of each other which i realize is a pretty unique thing uh, most ap teachers are sort of singletons like they are right. the ap biology teacher in their room so the first you know three four years i taught i had somebody else and i had some, that person in the building i could have the face-to-face -face conversations with all the time and we sort of worked things out and so I didn't really kind of go out into the community very often because it was kind of like a, we just sort of sorted our pieces out as we go. But as I've gone through, in particularly the last few years, and I'm getting into year, I guess it's five or six now teaching AP, I, I realized that like we reinvented the wheel a few times <laughs> and, um, and that, you know, I think there's some value to that. I think there's value of working through the process of coming that out. There's also times where I think that we unnecessarily struggled. Like if we had gone into the community and listened to what people were saying or asked opinions out there, what we could have done is we could have started the process at step, at step four or five right? rather than like struggling up to step four and five, which may or may not have been very efficient, might have gone us down some wrong roads. And then, like, we could have started at a deeper point and then gone in. So um, I think there's enormous value. And as I said, I didn't pay any attention to the real teacher community probably the first two or three years. And then I've lurked on there. And now, again, the Facebook community, I think I added to the Facebook community last year. Um, and now I lurk there as well. 
but to me, there's a huge value in there. And you're right. It, very few questions go unanswered. Um, if you wait three, four days, people, people post. Um, I should put things out there. I just. <laughs> well, and I think the other thing, is, I no, I granted, I haven't been on the other communities, but from what I've heard, ours is one of the biggest communities. Yeah. And it's also one of the ones where there seems to be a lot more sharing and a lot less criticism. And, and, and that's what I, that's what I want. I, I want people to be able to not be afraid to post things if they need help. And I'm, I try to get people to be concise and give people their answers without, and we have some posters that post really long posts, but I think there's a place for that, but it has to be, as David told me, just, just moderate. You have to, you have to be what that word means. You yeah. have to moderate the site. And in terms of my own professional development, I mean, I get to connect with more people and see more people at when I go to conferences and things or have conversations off community um, and help people. I mean, I've also learned a lot. I mean, there's so many people who do things differently than I do um, that in uh, a lot of, and so many more people that are more empathetic than I am too. Like I see like Kirsten um, Milks is fantastic, but she is so different than me in terms of the way I think. Um, she deals with people in such a nice way. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm mean, but but she's so supportive in how she deals with people that, you know, I learned a lot from that. It's like, oh, well, maybe I should take a, you know, a page out of that book and yeah. So anyway, I do learn a lot from from everybody who posts as well. Well, I think that the in, one of the other themes I find from talking to people who are involved in there is there is this degree of of sort of empathy that does run through. Like you start to view how other people handle handle situations that are similar to things that you've come across, and realize there's more than one way to do it. It's also just humbling. I mean, like no matter how hard I think I'm working. Um, you know, I see what Lee Ferguson's doing and I go like, yeah, I'm lazy. <laughs> you know, like, right. like, you know, like she's doing like 12 different things. I think there's, there's, there's these humbling things to say, you, you can't really rest on your laurels. If you're, if your job is to cultivate learners uh, in your classroom, you need to be a learner. You have to be out there asking questions and, um, thinking critically about what you're doing. And there are so, that's what I love about those communities is you get to see, teachers who are working to learn it's not people aren't bragging like oh this is the amazing thing that i'm doing people are are working through their process and sharing what they do and not as like like this is what i do and it's perfect but this is right. what i'm doing and i'm trying to learn how to do this better or i'm struggling with this or how do you approach this because it's something i want to learn about and to me that's the that's the joy of those communities i agree yeah um Rarely do you have somebody being critical of somebody else and saying, well, that's not the way to do it. Yeah. Or usually it's more of a, oh, really, you do it that way. Yeah. I, you know, I never thought of that. Or have you ever tried this? And and that's sort of what we're after. You know, we, yeah. we want it to be collegial like that. I have never done the floating discs in the Petri dish like you do. I, I am like still. It's... Uh, that was Brad's. That wasn't mine. <laughs> well, every, everything's Brad's. <laughs> but still, like yeah. I'm planning on doing that. I, I also steal a lot of the AP things and do it. I teach an alternative program group. Uh, and there is no overlap between my alternative program students and my AP students. So I can very easily take those labs and, and apply them into that group. It's not like with my honors bio students, I tend to keep the labs I do separate between those groups uh, because 
you don't want the kids to be like, oh, we're doing this lab again. Um, but that's a lab that I, I do with both my AP and my alternative program kids. And I may I may be trying it in the Petri dish when we when you go through well, it just to see what the data looks like. I have a problem with that. I mean, that that is the lab that I like the most. Yeah. And I, it's, it's, I have a problem. Like I need to see a therapist about that lab because <laughs> I will take it out whenever I have time and I'll run some discs and play around with it. And Brad always laughs. He's like, ah, see what I did to you. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's so simple and there's so many things you can vary. And, and, uh, anyway, yeah. um, it, it's a fun one. I'm kind of getting that way with yeast, with yeast spheres. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I, I love the yeast spheres. I love it as the enzyme lab. I love doing the yeast spheres as the enzyme lab because I love watching those little yeast spheres come up in the in the catalase. I know a lot of people like to do the paper discs, but to me, dropping the yeast spheres in the catalase and sure. watching them let, rise up, I I love that lab. But I've also figured out that you could do the yeast spheres, and if you could drop them into different, like a pH buffer, and with different sugars, you could get them to change the pH. I figured out yeah. sort of like there's a photosynthesis lab that's like that where you put the algae spheres into the different pH. So I've been playing around oh, right. with I, sure. So that's like an existing lab. And I figured out that if I use some different pH buffers, I could do the yeast spheres as a respiration lab. I'd, but I haven't figured yeah. it out. So I've got this like I have my folder of ideas and I have like this idea folder and it's got like this list of pH buffers and lists of different sugars. And it's one of those ones that I keep on wanting to work out, but I haven't quite figured it out but if i could make like 12 yeast sphere labs i would totally make 12 yeast. Well, see that's something you need to post on the community and yeah. say this is what i'm doing what do y'all think yeah i'm i'm, a, I'm a, i need to work out a little bit i need to get more reliable data to the point where saying i've been thinking about this this is where i am you know what are other people doing it's i it, it is again it's like pulling out that time to do it i'm thinking that this sure. spring i'm when i might because after the ap uh, my I have my juniors and seniors do a presentation and then our seniors leave about six weeks early. Um, it's a oh, weird wow. thing that happens in Massachusetts, but my seniors start their finals like middle of May. Um, and we don't give finals to our AP kids. So like literally I like we have a week and a half after the AP bio or I guess, yeah, it's, it's eight days after the AP bio. I have seniors in class and then they're gone. But then I have another like four and a half, sometimes five weeks with my juniors which is what I call R&D time, where sure. I pull out like, all right, guys, we want to try this. We want to try that. And so that's, you know, I unfortunately I have gotten really bad. I now have like a list of like 12 things I want to do in the five right. weeks. So like I have to prioritize. And usually what I do is I, I actually let the kids pick. I say, all right, these are the things I'm thinking about doing. And I'll put it out on the board and we do a little, you know, we do a little voting. And sometimes I have some kids doing one thing and other kids that do the other, but usually they pick they pick a theme. So that's on my list of of things to work out materials and methods of on cool. this year. So I'm gonna try that. So I'm going to skip the standard-based grading question that I had uh, in there because I, I was lurking at your old uh, sort of, it looks like abandoned uh, blog that you had up a few years ago and you had some stuff yeah. posted about standards-based grading. But I'm just going to I'm gonna jump into the what you're looking f for. So um, in the upcoming years, what are you looking forward to in your classroom? Oh, you know, I, I don't know. I kind of view this whole career as an experiment <laughs> and I try different things and I don't ever feel like I get it right. I mean, I, I have pretty decent test scores, a few great things by that. They're not the best in the world, but they're certainly not the worst. I mean, my students, it's all the credit goes to them. I mean, they, they prepare very well and 
I feel like they learn, you know, about what I, I hope they learn, but just this whole idea of right now, the thing that's really driving me is this idea of learning and what, what just the economy of it, like, mm -hmm. what can I do on a daily basis to, that's going to pay off the most for them to learn things. Yeah. Um, especially some of the complex things that we teach them in biology. Um, you know, I try different tools and techniques that I read about and, and some of them seem to be pretty good. Some of them seem to be kind of a waste of time, but you just, if you don't sort of take the risk and try different things, then, um, you never really get at that question. And, and so far, I mean, I think I've seen some improvement, like, we were talking a minute ago about the standards-based grading stuff. I mean, that was definitely a pathway I went down thinking, man, this could be it, but it didn't actually turn out the way I thought it would. Um, other things like, you know, I mean, formative assessment is really important, but what are the techniques that are most, get the most bang for the buck with the time we have where I'm getting stuff back? My biggest problem is getting kids to do stuff outside of class. Um, I've, I'm trying incentives. I'm trying all kinds of things like a lot of teachers are. Mm -hmm. A big problem right now where I have where kids are expecting to learn everything in 52 minutes and then come back the next day without revisiting it. Mm -hmm. They're surprised about how much they lose. And, and getting getting them into some sort of thinking routine and what works best. And anyway, um, it, it's a it's sort of pro it's going to drive my last 10 years, I think, of trying to figure out what works best. Well, I, I mean, I love the way that you started it because your you, your opening words were learning. And um, I guess my when you said that, I, I have been really struggling, particularly this year with the you know, the question of what is the connection between the grades that we're putting on the papers and the learning of the students? Like, where are they connected? Like when I give an assessment and at the end I put a number on it, what does that number mean? And does that number reflect the learning that was involved? And that and, and what is the student's involvement in that learning? Like you mentioned, you know, are they, they expecting to learn everything they need in 52 minutes? Well, sometimes that's perfect. You know, like they make the connection and they're good and they're ready for that next day. You know, I have a couple of kids who I look at their homework. I've got one kid in particular, I, I kind of have, I've had my kids do uh, textbook outlines and like, I can barely read his writing. Like it's, I, I honestly, it's a, a series of symbols that vaguely resemble the alphabet. Um, and I, I can't, I can barely make heads or tails of what it is, but he, he, when he does awesome work, when he has to type something up, it's, it's on point and it's well thought of. And when he, when he goes through and does a test and he has to answer questions, I can read all the stuff there and his ideas are well, you know, and so I tend not to harass him too much on his homework because I feel like it looks sloppy in there, but he's clearly processing and he's doing enough work to do the processing in there. Whereas if other kids who have this beautiful homework, it, it looks like they've transcribed the textbook, but they're focusing in on like trying to memorize all these little details. And I don't really know that they're learning. They're doing right. work. They're, they're working, but not learning. And then that the question is, well, do I give them 
how do I, you know, do I reward them with points? You know, I've got Paul stored in my head right now. <laughs> do I do I reward them with points for this assignment? And how do I incentivize them to realize that it really doesn't matter what points I put on it. It's on whether or not they learned. And that kind of has to come from them. And that's a huge cultural shift that, it, I, you know, you or I couldn't do alone. But how do I help, you know, incentivize them the right way to, to have them prioritize about the learning and not necessarily about the points? Well, I haven't had this conversation with Paul Strode. I, I know where he's coming from with the grade list idea. And, you know, a lot of people... Um, have that point of view. But I, I think of this too, though, that I, I had tended to forget for a long time because I, I did try some more holistic stuff where things weren't graded and I was looking for that intrinsic motivation for kids to get it done. And, and the component that I was forgetting was, was that I was just one class out of five yeah. or six that they have. And the way the student economics works is pretty simple they look at the the weights of their other teachers and how much they're weighting things. And if your weights are nothing, then your work's not going to get done until the last thing. Yeah. If their math class is, is has 60% weight of homework and you're not weighting it on anything, then they're not going to do your homework because they know that 60% of their grade in their math class is this homework. Yeah. And I don't particularly like that, but I don't know if there's an example of a school getting together and saying, hey, we've never thought of this idea of the student economic system. What are all of our weights and how are we, you know, maybe not a, maybe not coming up with rules and regulations about what everybody's weights and practices should be, but, but just this idea that have you ever thought of this before <laughs> that when you weight something at 60% homework, that that's actually going to affect four other classes because if they're not doing that, then so anyway, yeah. I, I don't think that, I, in, so my, I asked my students a number of years ago, if I, if I, if I didn't wait, if I didn't give points for homework, would you do it? And they said, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, why? And they told me, well, this is the way it works, Mr. Kuhn. Okay. And I said, okay, well, thanks for being honest. And then I said, well, how much would it take for you to do it? And they came up with this magical percent of 7% of the grade. Yeah, I think like, David got the almost the exact same percentage when he asked his yeah. kids. <laughs> and it's like, where did that come from? But but the idea was, you wait at seven percent, and we'll do it. And, and I I just it, that baffled my mind. Like I was yeah. like I had no response. I said, okay, that's seven percent. It's not a lot, you know. Like so anyway, uh, I I have I, I see the value in not wanting to grade things, and I think that that's an endeavor that I'm not going to take up, but I know that why others do it. But, um, but I, I think the student economic system is sometimes forgotten and maybe it's something to think about. Yeah, no, it's a, I think it's an excellent point into this whole larger conversation. And I, I, I started a couple of things that came up. One, uh, as I said, I've been conferencing with my students. And one of the things that a lot of my students talked about was they wanted to um, spread their studying out. They did wanted to stop stu just studying the night before the test. And so for kids who wrote that, my specific question was there, like, all right, so if four nights before the test, I was to block out and said, your homework tonight is to study for the test, and as opposed to the night before, which I always do. The night before, pretty much their homework is always study for the test. And they always do it then because the test is the next day. Almost every single student said, 
Well, yeah, it would depend on what my other subjects were. In other right. words, like if I say study and they don't have, you know, an English essay due the next day or a math test, but otherwise, if they had some other major assessment that was more pressing and more timely, they would say, well, it, just as you said, the student economics would say, I don't have bio homework tonight because, yes, he's put homework on here to study for the test, but there's no product associated with it. So unless I made a specific assignment that was about studying, that was something they had to do, you know, like answer some questions from a review sheet or work with somebody else to do something like unless there was a specific product associated with it. Right. There would there, there needs to be some incentive for them. And, and I think your economics piece is there. Uh, I would say that for my school, this is actually very timely for my school. We are having large conversations about assessment right now. And I've never heard anybody phrase it that way, but I think that we do, you know, we piloted this, um, this assessment calendar this year, uh, leading into our mid-years where only certain subjects could assess on certain days, uh, which, uh, the students by and large said they loved and nearly every teacher I talked to did not like it, um, <laughs> because it was right. very, it was very limiting. Um, and, but I do think it fits into that economics piece, you know, um, from a student's perspective, that's how they think. And we were being forced into thinking like their system of, of prioritizing in certain ways. So. So the other thing too, I was thinking about, which is, so I was making this analogy to gene expression, right? And so the stuff, the student economics stuff we were talking about is like the genes being expressed, but the epigenetic layer on top of all that, of whether those (laughs) genes get expressed or not, in my school are things like sports and extracurriculars. Like yeah. they'll never miss a sports practice, yeah. you know, or they'll never miss an orchestra practice after school. And they'll, you know, when I say, did you study? Well, no, I had, I had lacrosse practice last night or I can't come and make up a quiz. <laughs> and, I, and, and, you know, and it's very easy to get frustrated, but from their perspective, the fun is the epigenetics layer. Like, yeah. if, so would I, what I really want to see more in my EP class, and you know, we don't, we have open enrollment, so we don't really select who's in the classes or not, but I really stress that I do want kids who like science, like not, I don't know at that level if it's possible. I mean, it is possible to like science as much as you would like football or lacrosse for a lot of kids, but at my school, I don't get as much of that as maybe in other schools. So I, that's what I want. I want kids who are interested in science, who want to learn about science the way they kind of would want to do well at football or soccer. Yeah. And I don't know how realistic that is, but it is certainly an interesting thing when you overlay extracurricular stuff on top of all this other stuff, how that changes in their mind too, you know? Yeah, that is the most awesome, nerdiest, ex- you know, <laughs> analogy of uh, the complexities of grading anyone has ever thrown out. So <laughs> I love it. I have to find some sort of link to put into the, the show notes uh, to people. But I, so what we need to do is we need to have uh, AP biology uh, needs to acetylate uh, the learning uh, as right. opposed to the methylation that happens with the, uh, I'm going to take it a step further, you know, the methylation of lacrosse and football practice. Uh, right. <laughs> but, you know, those things are valuable to them too. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they're not valuable. So yeah. I don't want to tell them they shouldn't do those things because I'm being selfish, but I would really love the 
I'd really love the balance to be different in, in some ways where, you know, I, I try not to be mean and say, you know, most of you are not going to be lacrosse professionals, <laughs> but you know, the stuff that we're teaching you in school could take you, you know, a little further than what's going to happen with lacrosse. But yeah, you know, that, that ends up just being mean spirited because mm-hmm. it is, it is an important thing to them and you can't really tell them that it's not important. So what you should do is we should get football players, uh, pictures of football players in their 60s and pictures of uh, Nobel laureates in their 60s right. and say, which would you rather be when you're an old person? Would you rather look like this? <laughs> uh, yeah. So a little on more longevity in science. Right. So. Yeah. All right. So uh, when you are not teaching, what does uh, Kunbo uh, like to do? <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I have one child and I spent a lot of years, um, bike racing yep. and, um, with being, you know, bike racing and riding was one of those things that you had to do, put a lot of time in to get very little return. And so I wasn't around a lot cause I was focusing on, and it was purely a hobby, but I was putting a lot of time time into it. Um, I try to spend as much time as I can with my daughter and my family and whatever that, whatever that ends up being. Um, you know, I do, uh, I like reading. Um, mm-hmm. I'm more of a nonfiction type reader than I am a fiction type reader. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I do some athletic stuff, but not like I used to, but, but I don't have a, a tremendously huge hobby, I guess that, sort of consumes my time anymore. I've sort of gone down that path before. Yeah. Yeah. I have my, I occasionally ride my running is running is my thing. That's my, that's my time fill. But I think now as, as, as I am aged, uh, (laughs) the running is more like the therapy break for me. Like it's just like an hour I have. That's my time that I get to sort of process and think. And, but it's less of a, you know, time consuming, you know, competitive piece where I'm, you know, getting up early and going to track or, you know, looking to push the times as much. Uh, it's more of something that goes on in the background. Uh, but yeah, a lot of bite, not a lot of cyclists, a lot of cyclist teachers. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I mean, it was fun. I look back on it fondly, but there's time and places for things and yeah. I'm 50 now. So um, I know plenty of people who still do it in their fifties, but the other thing too is I just got a little out from being on the road so much riding. I just don't, I feel like my number never came up. And one of these days, my number was just going to come up where I was going to get hit. Yeah. And um, I just, I felt like if I were to get hit at 50, I mean, sometimes it doesn't matter, but, yeah. but it, the consequences would be bigger. So I turned to other things where the consequences were. <laughs> A little bit the risk was a little bit less so yeah. like swimming and cycling i don't really have to work or um running i don't really have to worry about it as much so yeah the, the i i will say that for years you know before i did a couple of triathlons which is why i have a bike but every couple of years i'd think oh maybe i'll do a triathlon and then literally one of my friends who cycles would have a crash and i'd be like well maybe not and like every every couple of years and then i did finally bite the bullet in there but i i know what you mean like i am probably the most timid uh, road cyclist out there. I know I could go a lot faster and I know that that's sort of one of those keys to being a really good competitive cyclist. Obviously you got to build the motor, but there is this piece where you just have to kind of let it out 
and really sort of trust, have a lot of trust. I, and in group rides too, like I, I did a couple group rides. I hated them because I like, yeah. you have to have a lot of trust over the people around you and, and you have to trust yourself as well. But man, it's, it's scary. There's a big hill near me, near me that I, I, I run up and down and I like literally avoid cycling down it because I'm afraid of what kind of numbers I could hit. Like I, I legitimately think I could get, you know, close to 40 miles an hour coming down that hill. I, I don't doubt it. This is so open. And I, I've hit 35 on other lesser hills, you know, at the top. And I'm just like, I know that talking to cyclists that they get up in their range. And I was like, I would, that's terrifying going 40 miles an hour on a bike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I said, I'm not, I'm not much of a cyclist. Every cyclist I know runs faster, but I know that's part of that's part of that's the motor, but part of that's, I'm super timid on my bike when I do put it on the road. So I think it's a w- wise decision. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wise decision. Um, <laughs> So uh, before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Uh, I just was curious to how the um, podcast was going. I remember when you started it, um, you really didn't know what to expect. And um, it sounds like you've had some awesome guests. I mean, you've had the Pauls at this point. Yeah. I don't know. Have you, have you had David? I don't remember. Yeah, David. Was David was your first one? No, David remember. was the first one of the school year. So he was, school uh, year, right? yeah, it was yeah, right yeah. as he was shifting his, his piece. So yeah, I, I've had, a, I mean, it's, it's been sort of, it's been funny. Like, you know, I've been talking to, you know, now that I've got you on, I'm, I'm getting through all the celebrities of the biology ah, teaching ah, ward world. Oh, no. <laughs> so I got you and, uh, Paul Anderson, Paul Anderson, Paul Stewart. I got Ry- no. Ryan Reardon is in, is, is on oh, the, Ryan, yeah. Ryan's yeah. coming up. Uh, so like, yeah, I've got, and the, you know, there's a, there's a lot of really great teachers who I haven't even reached out to. So I'm like almost afraid to, to put their names out there. But, uh, for me, you know, I think sort of what we were talking about with the, the teacher community, um, I, I am someone who uh, I think anybody who knows me and talks to me one on one will say, yeah, he never shuts up. Um, he just <laughs> he talks and talks. But that's I, that's sort of my realm. I love the one on one conversation. That's sort of where I like to learn. That's where I I think I think and I process. And I think part of with online communities, I get a little bit into my own head. I read and I think and I don't type particularly fast. So like I read and I process, but I don't necessarily post a lot. But in a one on one conversation, I, I share a lot. So. I feel like I've been accelerating this year sort of in professional development. It sort of pushed my thinking on so many different things. Right. Um, like in terms of personal reward, it's been an amazing year. Um, I certainly have tried new things and and pushed myself into new areas. And it's, it's enriched conversations I've had in my own building with other teachers um, because I've had these conversations with people you know, all over the country um, and that sort of thing. So for me, it's been tremendously rewarding. Um, I am less panicked about trying to find people who will have conversations with me. Um, I I realized that I can do that. Um, I've also found that like I have this list that I created and there's all these people I, I haven't gotten back to. Like, it's like I have these lists of, of, of teachers who I met in conferences and various other things that I had intended to, to touch, but just through natural like curiosity or conversations, you know, um, you know, people have popped up and I'm like, Oh no, I got to reach out to that person now. Cause that's the, that's the place that I'm in right now. Um, uh, my own personal curiosity has what has been driving these questions and that sort of thing. So, uh, I'm really excited about NSTA in, uh, in LA because I've had yeah. all these conversations with people and now it's like, I'm going to see face to face a handful of people who I had these conversations with. So, um, I always love the national conferences, but I can see how much better they're going to be in the next couple of years as I go to them and, right. You know, know people. Um, I don't know. Are you planning on going out there with Georgia coming up? Uh, are you, um, yeah, I'll be in LA for um, 
doing some stuff with HHMI. Awesome. Um, the way it works now is that you have to do proposals for the NSTA because there's a lot of ambassadors and not everybody can go and be supported there because mm -hmm. there's just too many people. So you have to sort of do proposals. So I, I was fortunate to be able to go out there, which I've, I've never been to Los Angeles before. So um, pretty fun. Um, I think it's going to be a different kind of conference because it's on the West Coast. So yeah. It's, it's funny. This is going to be my fifth NSTA. I've been to three in Boston. Uh, I went to one in San Francisco and now I'm going to Los Angeles. So <laughs> like literally I've, wow. I've been to, I've been to California. Coast to coast. Yeah. This is my, this is going to be my third time in California. Um, and it's my second time going to NSTA conference. So, uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to, to go out and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, as I said, I, 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 I'm already booked. I got into one of the Wednesday um, workshops the day before. Um, so I'm like, I'm going to be in a full day workshop on Wednesday. And then I just started, just started to comb through the, the catalog a little bit, pulling out some, some interesting cool. pieces. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited. So, all right. Did you, uh, so did you get to, uh, do you have a pick for the episode? Did you get a pick of the week? Yeah. Um, actually I have two things that were interesting to me. Um, so at the GSTA conference, there were two teachers that presented a um, session on AP free response notebooks. And they, um, they're both local here. They, they teach at Kennesaw Mountain High School and they teach AP environmental science. But the idea was that they have each kid has a composition book. And the composition book just is um, so they paste in the free response question or the fragment of a free response question. They do their writing for 10 or 20 minutes on whatever it is they're doing. And then they get the rubric and they paste in the rubric and they go through like a lot of us do with highlighters and highlight where they think they got points. And then the cool part of it was, is that they, what they can do then is they can pass the notebooks to another person and the other person can use the rubric and they either make a check mark on the highlighted passages where they agree that they got the point or they do an X and then they have a place for feedback of why they think they didn't get a point or if it was a place they missed, they could suggest, well, you missed this part, you should have gotten a point here. And so this is a thing by the end of the course, they have this notebook with all these free response questions that they've analyzed and they've seen over time that their free response writing has gotten better and better and better. So I think this is something I want to try. Yeah um as well it seems pretty simple and and very low cost so yeah. you know we'll see i could i could see even doing this with some some lower grades um i think that it, one of the things that my school our, our kids are like multiple choice question animals they're like they churn through those but they don't do a great job with open response questions it's it's something that students really really struggle with and um, I do a lot of data analysis that in, in pieces like that, um, where when I put on like a lab experiment or that sort of thing, the kids seem to either like it either clicks or it doesn't, and we don't do enough practice. So I could see, I could see this being even something that, that we could do with other, at other levels as well, where, you know, obviously we'd have to not pick the AP free responses, but I think there's definitely some value to, to having students practice and then, you know, have another peer editor you know, check their work. I think that's a uh, right. Great. So what was the other one? Oh, uh, the other one was just sort of a, a, just a trivial thing, but I just saw yesterday that 
the Fleetwood Mac rumors is 40 years old <laughs> today. So I, I couldn't believe I was thinking about if I was in 1977, when that came out 40 years before that 1937, that would be the time frame. I was thinking that's crazy that it's been 40 years, but yeah. anyway, I'm old. So that, that really <laughs> made an impression on me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We, I, the, the number of times I have conversations with people and they say, you know, back in 1980 something, you know, 20 years ago. And I'm like, nope, 30 years ago, <laughs> you lost a I decade. Uh, <laughs> I, I frequently find myself saying that, uh, to, to people, uh, that they need to, they need to keep check their, their dates and their, their, their decades. But yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to figure out what, what, what music, what was the number one release in 1937 this week? Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, don't sit under the apple tree or yeah. some sort of you know jaunty tune that they were. Well, I was was let's see, it was still depression, right? So uh, I don't know what it, that'd be a little a little post depression. It was okay. post depression, but pre uh, World War Two. So now this is where my sister should be on here because that she's a musicologist. This is literally what she does. Um, she does uh, she does historical music, and uh, her although her specialty is World War One area, uh, but. <laughs> So yeah. yeah. All right. So my pick is um is this uh is something called a pineapple chart. Have you ever heard of a pineapple chart? I have not. Okay. So uh this is something uh I was reading a book uh, from a that's called a hack learning series uh called Throwing Out Grades. Uh, it was about huh. going gradeless. I, I started reading it right after my conversation with Paul Strode uh and I wanted to uh I wanted to sort of take a look and see you know, what, what was this, you know, was a deeper dive into how do people go gradeless and that sort of thing. So I went in and I, um, I, I read it and one of the things they put up was this idea of a pineapple chart and it's a way of putting a chart in a central space, um, like in a department, I have put it in my department, uh, where people can post like interesting things they're doing in their classroom that week. So, for example, last week I did um, I do these chalk marker activities where I take my lectures and I go through them and I convert the content of them into like a question. And so instead of going through six PowerPoint slides, I write six questions and then I randomly assign the students to the, the large lab tables and I put a chalk marker out and I have them write out the questions. So that was an activity that I do. It's sort of unique. It's not something a lot of people do. So I post it up. I'll be doing a chalk marker lecture flip on this and people have heard me talk about that but i posted like it's it's happening in this room in room 258 because that's my classroom um during and i posted it in the two periods and so anybody who's interested in seeing this technique could come by um i know this oh, cool. upcoming week uh one of the ap bio uh sorry the ap enviro teachers is doing something and so he posted up something neat so the idea is that it's like a within the department or within a school if you're smaller i mean my department's 20 21 people so like our school you know <laughs> we've got 2,000 students so just to do right. within the department is is a lot this is a way for people to share sort of interesting teaching techniques or that sort of thing that they're doing within their room just to sort of open up the idea um, I'm looking forward to hoping some of some of the physics teachers um, who do uh, test corrections they have like a method they've been doing test corrections for a year and I've been thinking about doing test corrections so I'm hoping that they'll post up the periods that they do that test corrections that way when they're doing that, I can go and walk in their room and sort of see what test corrections look like, you know, when they do it. Um, so is it is it sort of like one of these big paper pads on an easel and people write on them? Or yes. Hot? So it could be that way or it could be like a whiteboard or chalkboard. I literally took a bulletin board um, and I gridded it out with like masking tape. 
um, <laughs> and put Monday, okay. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday along the top. And we have an eight period day. And I did period one, you know, one through eight over on the side. And then I put a okay. little, uh, little envelope with a bunch of little slips of paper that fit into the grids. And so you can just write it on and then tack it up on the board. Uh, and so that's how I do it. And I know you can do it with a whiteboard or a, a chalkboard or a big giant easel and just, you know, turn them over every week. Uh, but I thought, you know, it's sort of a I'm trying to promote sort of that learning culture from the teachers um, within our department. It. Yeah. So um, I, thought, I don't know. I thought it was cool. It was different. I hate the name pineapple chart um, because it sounds weird and it doesn't have anything to do with it. I like I want the name of it to have something to do with what it is. Uh, but right. but the, the origin of it was they said the pineapple was the symbol of hospitality. That's how they came up with the original name. And. You know, I, okay. I didn't come up with the idea. They came up with the idea. They named it. So I'm sticking with their name. But yeah, I thought it was a an interesting idea. And it was something culturally I hadn't really seen. Um, and I, I proposed it to my department head and he was like, pitch it to the department and post it up. So we are like literally in week two of trying this out. Um, and I've asked people to do it. And I may, you know, plug it again now that I've I, I plugged it at a department and said, would you be willing to do that? And people sort of, you know, nobody said no. <laughs> so, so I built it. And now at our next department, I'm going to promote it. And so I'm hoping that in the next couple of months, we'll sort of see, does this catch on? And, you know, it's definitely sure. cultural, so we'll see if it does, but. No, I think that's great because one of the things that you sort of never get to do is see each other teach because you're always teaching. Yeah. So if there was a way to either do it on your planning period or set up a way for other teachers to watch your class for 10 minutes while you go see something else that somebody else is doing. Yeah. Um, that's great. I'm going to try that. I think. Yeah. Thanks for the tip. So great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I know I learn a lot about what other people do in their, com you know, through these conversations and, and have the flush out. But, you know, I don't even have a common planning period with my, my fellow AP bio teacher this year. So like uh, literally tough. like, yeah, like literally we have to catch moments where like I, I teach during his, he, he is off one of my two AP uh, classes I teach, but I teach when he teaches AP. So like literally if I want to, I, I can't see him implement things. Right. Like I, I just don't have the opportunity. Um, and I, yeah, it's, it's really tough this year with that grouping. So I'm trying to learn as much as I can from other people. So cool. All right. Well, Bob, this was awesome. This is a great conversation. Um, thank you so much for setting time aside. Uh, this is going to be our, our mid February post, uh, mid February episode. Uh, we're up to episode, I said 17. So, wow. So it's going well. I got. I think I have to get to what eighty one. I have to break eighty one. I got eighty two to beat horizontal transfer. So, <laughs> so I got to be doing this for like four years if that's the case. Uh, but <laughs> I'm committing to you try to do, do twenty four. I'm going to commit to commit to twenty four and see if we can build out. But uh, let me give my uh, my my credits. Um, music on this and every episode are brought to you by uh, X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Jake is a former student of mine who currently lives in L.A. So maybe I will see him out during the NSTA conference. Uh, that was the last time I saw him was when I was out in uh, Long Beach uh, for a workshop. And uh, you can download this uh, and subscribe to this at really any place podcasts are found. It's on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, really any place you can get it. Um, you can get show notes at lifeoftheschool.org. And then you can uh, contact me at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School on Twitter. And we said AP Bio Roswell if you want to uh, tweet at Bob and ask him follow-up questions, uh, commiserate about the age of Fleetwood Mac, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or see him post his interesting things. So thank you again for joining me, Bob. And um, I will talk to everybody soon.
my dog has decided to join the podcast. Um, <laughs> she, <Awesome. laughs> she just tore down the stairs at me. Uh, uh, um, 